When I was a kid, um, one of the stories, uh, one of the cartoons that I loved watching was uh, uh, Popeye. Um, my mother actually tried to use Popeye to convince me that spinach was good. Um, but spinach out of a can, it's like, ugh, it should not be eaten. And if you like it, hallelujah. Um, but I, I loved Popeye and he always had this little nemesis with uh, Bluto. And, he, um, and they would be sparring back and forth. But periodically, Bluto would cross the line. You know this. He would cross the line and Popeye would say in his intense rage, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. Oh man, I loved that. I always loved it when Popeye got fed up. You just, you know, you didn't, you, you loved it to, if you will, hate Bluto. And, and I, there's a lot of Blutos in the world. But I always loved it when Popeye drew the line in the sand chugged down that nasty stuff called spinach out of a can and said, Bluto, I've had enough. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. John puts this lovely story in a very different place. All four gospels have this story. But where it happens in the other three gospels is actually chronologically where it happened. And that is the last week of Jesus's life, if you will, before the crucifixion. They're coming into Jerusalem, the text tells us. It's Passover week. And Christ comes in to the temple and he sees something and he says, I can't stand it anymore. He draws a line, said, I've had enough grabs a whip and starts to clean house. John, interestingly enough, puts this at the very beginning of his gospel. So last week, Pastor Tyler talked about the wedding, his first public miracle. Right after that, that's a view we like. We like the Jesus that goes to a party turns the party into the talk of the town. We love the story where Jesus looks at his mom and says, mom, I love you so much that I'm going to break my scheduled unveiling because I love you and I love your friends. And he broke that whole process and he said, I, I'm gonna do a miracle. We, we love that Jesus. And if that's the only Jesus we have, that'd be good. But then all of a sudden John says, I need to give you the other side of the coin. Yes, Jesus loved to show up to parties, turn the water into wine. There was also a day he walked into the temple with a whip in his hand and he said, I've had enough. And if you don't have both aspects of Jesus, you have an insufficient Christ. And much like Priscilla and Aquila, when they had an opportunity with Apollos, they, they brought him under their tutelage and they gave him a fuller view of Christ. John, who does not write chronologically, he writes thematically. And he doesn't give us the story of Christ's life in chronological order. He gives us in these thematic connections. He does it all the way through his gospel. We'll try and highlight it when we see it, where he takes a story that the other gospels kind of put it in a very different location. And John comes along and he goes, no, 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 no. It, it happened at a different location. I just want to put something together. 
And he does it for a very specific reason. He's trying to help you get a fuller view of Christ. And one of the revelations of Christ is his courage to not just be a party goer, to not just be the, the, the savior who um, uh, is so kind and approachable that a woman who's hemorrhaging for years comes to him. But he's also the one who says to his dear friend, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's also the one who grabs a whip and he walks into the temple and he flips that place upside down. Single-handedly, he becomes the equalizer of the temple. I've had enough. I'm done. Mike Myatt, in a quote I have loved, says, leaders don't get paid to make safe decisions. They get paid to make the right decisions. I think pastoring for almost 40 years now, I, I realize the last five years or so, that's really been true. There's been all kinds of decisions that our staff, our leadership had to make here that were really difficult, wasn't real clean, and everyone had different opinions. And we, we came through that season, and I think you as a church were, were remarkable. But I will tell you, there were times we just huddled up and said, God, and, and we had all kinds of voices from every side. And it seemed like the voices came to us with threats. If you don't, I, and you know, you fill in the blank. Pastor, when are you going to get the governor's knee off of you, the back of your neck? Um, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> but leaders don't get paid to make safe decisions. Those are the easy ones. The decisions where everyone applauds, those are easy. The decisions that are just really obvious, those are easy. It's the decisions that leaders distinguish themselves when they're willing to walk into a room, when they're willing to walk into their own lives, when they're willing to look at themselves in a way like Jesus did and said, I can't stand it anymore. I've had enough. We're done. Cross the line. And what Christ exemplifies for us are three aspects of a courageous leader that lives and leads with conviction, not as a poll taker. And the first thing that he describes to us is this leader who's willing to come in and if you will, refuse to look the other way. There's a lot of leaders that just look the other way and the only way they deal with it is if somebody sneaks it out and throws it out in public or they you know, write a story or they sue you or whatever the case may be. But it's an amazing thing today. What we see is how many leaders are willing to sweep something under the carpet and hope that they can get out of office or hope that they can move through and never have it surface. In other words, they're more than willing to not deal with something unless they're forced to. Christ walks into the temple and he's had enough. What did he see? Well, it's Passover week. It's tax time. Now, in our world, we all know April 15th. I know it's changing and it's a little softer and everything else, but April 15th still. You say April 15th. What happens April 15th? And man, everyone in our country knows it's time to pay your taxes. But none of us think, oh, it's time to go to church and worship. I get to pay all my taxes. They did. 
They would come into Jerusalem. They would come from all kinds of different regions and they would come into Jerusalem. And one of their assignments during this Passover week was to make your way to the temple and to pay the temple tax. That's where you paid your tax. You probably pay some tax like to Matthew, road tax and and other good tax. But the reality is you always had to pay the temple tax. How much was it? Approximately two days wages. Ah, except for you were coming into town with a different currency, currency probably than Galilean currency. And so you had to make your way to the temple and that's where you exchanged your money. That's where you traded something. It was wheat, it was barley, it was a sheep, it was something. But you traded your goods for Galilean money because you could only pay your tax in Galilean money. And they found a way to make all kinds of money. They would charge 50%. So that two-day tax turned into a three-day tax because they charged a 50% tax on the exchange. Well, they didn't stop there because making money is a lot of their passion. And so what they also discovered is, is that when you came, you had to not only pay your tax, but you had to sacrifice something. And when they would bring... One of the requirements is that the sacrifice that you brought, a dove, here it mentions dove, but they would bring sheep and they would bring other animals and they would bring them and the priest would examine the animal and you could not sacrifice an animal that had a blemish. You know, you can't bring a three-legged, you know, sheep. You can't bring a one-legged dove. You, you know, can't bring a, a broken-winged dove. It doesn't happen. But what they discovered is these priests had an amazing ability to see a blemish where no one else did. So they would come to town, they've traveled for a week, and they would bring their offering into the temple and the priest would, in a second, cause terror. Because he would say, oh, there's a blemish right here. You can't give that sheep, you can't give that dove. Now what do you do? It's not like they had a wire transfer, please wire me another dove. It's not like they had, you know, wire transfers from home. They're away from home. And the reality is if they don't pay their tax, they can be arrested. If they don't pay their tax, some of their families can be, you know, held. And so now you've got a situation. And so most people, because they knew what the priests were doing and they knew that they were corrupt, they would just simply come and rather than bring something from home, oftentimes they would go into the temple and they would buy a dove. Why? Because the priest had remarkably said all the doves in the temple are pure without blemish. Jesus comes into this setting. Verse 16, he says, those who sold doves, he said to them, get these out of here. It's not that Jesus didn't like doves. He didn't like extortion. It's not that Jesus had a problem with their sacrifice. It's he had a problem with people abusing the right and the need and the demand of worship and making money out of it. And he called them out. And he said to them, get these out of here. How dare you? And he walked through and he looked at all of those selling. How dare you turn my father's house from a house of prayer for all nations into a marketplace? How dare you? 
Now, there's been all kinds of religious leaders that have gone into the temple for weeks, months, years, and they never said a word. To be honest with you, the disciples, many of them grew up in this area and they'd gone to the temple and they never had a problem with it and they never said anything. They just kind of went along with it. And what Jesus decided is, is I refuse to look the other way. I refuse. I refuse to say there's not a line. And this text raises a question for all of us. Is there areas in your life where you have simply been willing to look the other way? You've been simply to under the guise of grace. When the reality is God has been bringing conviction to your heart and asking you to look at something and say, wait a minute, where's your line? I've had enough. I've allowed too much. I've crossed the line. You've crossed the line. Because courageous leaders are not willing, they simply are not willing to continue to look the other way. It doesn't mean that you all become Indiana Jones spiritually. But what it does mean is you have to ask yourself the question, God, are there areas in my life where I have to say enough? Secondly, Courageous leaders are those who refuse to minimize the glory of God. This is really where the text lands squarely. Jesus, who is God, who was there at the writing of 1 Kings, fully understood that the temple was a place that the glory of God resided. The temple is the place that the Ark of the Covenant would take up its residence and it would be the place where the glory of God was present. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, it describes a cloud. It was thick and it filled the room. And it was a representation of the glory of God that filled the temple and fulfilled the very vision that God had for his temple. What was it? To be a house of prayer for all nations. When Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles, this is where this marketplace existed. It was the only place the Gentiles could worship. They couldn't go beyond there. And so the one place that the world could come to worship, remember, the house of God, the house of prayer for all nations, and yet the one place that the world could come had now been what? Confiscated to a marketplace. Jesus walks in and realizes there's no glory here. There's just hucksters. There's no one here that is concerned with the glory of God. It's just people who are trying to line their pockets with money. This place that was supposed to be an invitation. You see, when you go back, when God was dealing with Abraham and he called Abraham and he began to birth the nation of Israel and he began to birth them with this vision. Abraham, come, walk with me, trust me, and I will make you the father of many nations. And you will be what? A blessing, not only to the nation of Israel, but to the world. That was God's vision. And Jesus walked into the temple And the very place that was supposed to be open to the world was now closed. 
It's always our temptation to reduce God. It is. I know Christians make a lot to do about Hollywood and its corruption of the United States. And yeah, it's true. And uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. But the reality is they're not our threat. They're, they're not. Idolatry is your threat. The greatest threat you face every day are not individuals who have a different view of gender than you. Your greatest threat every day are not individuals who have a different definition of marriage. I may disagree with them, but the greatest threat to my life and to yours and to our church is idolatry. It's a minimalized view of God and an elevated or an inflated view of yourself. That's your threat. And there's a lot of ways we do that. Sometimes we turn Jesus into kind of a pop superstar who's cool and wears skinny tight jeans and he's just the the coolest guy in the world. He shows up to parties and he turns them into, you know, uh, hay bangers where we get to drink wine and we're cool folks. And and Jesus becomes not our savior, not our Lord, not one with a whip in his hand, but a party goer. Did he go to parties? Oh, yeah. Did he tell Peter, get behind me, Satan? Yes. Did he walk into the temple with a whip and flip every table and chair upside down? Yeah. Sometimes we reduce God by making him seem slightly above us with names like the man upstairs. The big guy in the sky. I was recently reading in the book of Job. And I kind of decided that I think probably mandatory reading for me periodically more than, you know, once every four or five years is Job 38, 39, and 40. It's that place where Job's been having this conversation with God and telling God, you know, God, I'm not sure I really like the way you're running this world. I don't like the way you've treated me. I don't like the way you're caring for me. And I'd like a hearing with you. And God says, well, no problem, Job. But let me start off, if you will, with just a few questions. Job Did I consult you when I created the heavens and the earth? When I put a boundary on the ocean and told it where it could go, did I ask your opinion? And by the way, were you the one who put that boundary there? Hey, Job, when I was creating the heavens and the earth and the stars up there and I was naming every one of them, uh, by chance, were you there placing those stars? Did I consult you? And God just goes through this whole chapter and it comes to this place where you realize that Job is just humbled. And if you read it, you will be too. Because it's silly to call God the big man upstairs. The silliness, my friend. He's God. And the chasm between the creator and the created is so significant that we cannot do anything to minimize the glory of who God is and the power. Reading through Daniel right now and just again enamored by the the strength of God and the glory of God to bring Daniel a vision and a dream. Here's what's going to happen before they're even alive. This is what I'm going to do. Daniel, tell them. Tell them today their life is going to be taken from them. It's just one after another where Daniel has to deliver this message. Dear king, you don't know who you're messing with. And your arrogance to God, he's had enough. 
Courageous leaders refuse to minimize the glory of God. And dear friend, may I suggest, please start with yourself before you look at anyone else. Please allow God to humble all of us in this room with the sheer glory and power and wisdom of God. Ever since yesterday morning, I've been just troubled in my heart as I can imagine the streets that many of us together in this room have, have driven down and, and gone around and just to feel the panic. And yet, having just read through Job and Daniel, I'm thinking to myself, oh, you who in the name of God rape women, you will face your maker, you will face your God. And I would dare say, I don't even want to be there when they do because God will not have mercy on them. Don't do anything to minimize the glory of God. Jesus says, I can't stands anymore. A.W. Tozer in his beautiful book, The Holiness of God, says with our loss of the sense of majesty, it's come further and further, this loss of religious consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship, our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity, and by the way, he probably wrote this 60 years ago. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christians who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words be still and know that I am God mean next to nothing to a self-confident and inflated worshiper. Jesus walked into the temple and said, oh, dear friends, you who toy with the glory of God. And he flipped the tables upside down and he went around with a whip that he put into his hand. And it's interesting to me that not one person, it seems to me in this text, rose up to fight him because I think they looked in his eyes and realized he will not stop until we're out. Lastly, courageous leaders protect the worship of God. Then the Jews demanded of him, verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? In other words, you know what, Jesus, if you want us to worship, you'd better do something spectacular. How at times we have leveraged God and said to him, the cross is not enough. You gotta save my child. You gotta repair my marriage. You have to heal my finances. Then I'll worship you. They come to Jesus and 
Jesus says, you tear down this temple and in three days, I'll rebuild it. Those arrogant individuals, 46 years it took us to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? I mean, no idea that what Jesus was bringing them back to was the real temple, his body. You destroy this temple and in three days, I will conquer death. I will raise from the dead. I will walk out victorious. And if that's not enough to cause you to worship, nothing else will. If the resurrection is not enough for you to fall flat on your face in adoration of Christ, no other gimmick will do it. If the glory of Christ to come and to die for you and me and to forgive you of all of your sins, if that's not sufficient, then healing your finances will only be a temporary salve. It won't be sufficient to sustain a worshiping heart because if you're not taken and enamored and just in awe of the resurrection and of Christ's victory over death and his victory over hell, my friends, nothing else will really matter. And so you and I have to be courageous and we have to protect worship and we have to understand when we see it in our own heart or maybe in our friends. And and what are we looking for? I'd give you three things. Number one, an irreverence that comes out of a familiarity that breeds contempt, not worship. An irreverence that comes out of our familiarity with Christ. We are so familiar. We're so aware of all he's done. I've heard the story so many times, but sometimes I can hear that story over and over again. And the next thing I know, I've got this familiarity with Christ that it doesn't birth worship. It's kind of like, in fact, it sometimes can breed within me. Well, God, do it again. Do another miracle. I remember years ago when I was at uh, Multnomah, I wasn't studying there. I was with the navigators. And we spent the summer just studying the word of God. And I, I fell in love with the wisdom and the power of God's word. It was the first time in my life I began to see the providential, sovereign work of God. And this prevening grace that goes ahead of me. But I have to be honest with you, over the years, at times, it can wane. And the word of God doesn't have that freshness. It doesn't have that electricity. I'm too familiar with it. I have to ask God once again, oh God, give me a reverent heart to you. Give me again that heart that is absolutely taken with your wisdom, that is profoundly moved by your providential love. I think another thing that we need to be aware of in our own life is a joyless performance, a dutiful singing of the songs unmoved because the voice of our context is louder than the voice of God. Sometimes we can run into that place where we're joyless And we're joyless because we're building our lives, we're framing our lives, our worship is driven out of the context of the current situation rather than the glory and the power of Christ. 
Sometimes we can go down in those valleys and we can lose perspective because the voice of my context, my current experience is louder in my heart than the glory of Christ. It's true. You and I sometimes walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes we walk through very difficult places. Carrie and I are walking through the season where we had to put my mom in memory center, a memory care center. And when I go and visit her, man, I, I, to be quite honest with you, I feel horrible. I walk out nearly in tears or in tears every time. It's not a fun place. Those who work there, great people. But when a person loses their mind and they walk through that journey and, and they have no idea of who they are and where they're at and, and that, that lived out in front of you, it's like, oh man, and yet if I allow that to be the determiner of my worship, I am saying the context of my life has a greater voice than the glory of Christ. Courageous leaders protect the worship of God, first and foremost in your own life. Third thing to watch for is what I will call a narcissistic individualism. It's what shows up in verse 18. They demanded of Christ, perform for us again. I dare you, Jesus, do something else. Make worship of you worth our time. Attempting it is for all of us to sing songs that are of worship, but actually when you dissect them, they're nothing more than a narcissistic approach to using the glory of God for my benefit. Courageous leaders don't run around with a whip looking for everybody else. They start with their own heart. God, have I allowed a joylessness, a duty, a narcissistic individualism that has turned all of your power and your strength towards my benefit? And have I become so familiar with you, Jesus, and with your word that I can read it and be unmoved by it, even bored? Ah, oh, it's then that I hear Jesus walking and knocking at the door and he comes not because he hates me to scold me. He comes because there's nothing worse in your life than to raise up an idol with your name on it and to minimize the glory and the power of God. It will cannibalize your soul. It will deteriorate your mind. It will be poison in your family's life. And so Jesus urges us, yes, he's the winemaker, quite a good one. And he's also the whip handler. And he comes into our church as a courageous leader to make sure that there's nothing in the way so that we might worship God, nothing. C.S. Lewis had this rare, rare ability to do exactly what John did. He puts in the Chronicles this picture of this lamb that is soft and white and vulnerable. 
And then he displays the glory and the strength of Aslan. He says, you put those two together. That's your God. John does the same thing. The winemaker, the kind son, the angry line in the sand whip holder who flips every table. I wondered why no one rose up against him. The odds were against Jesus' favor. I wonder why there wasn't anyone. And maybe it was in our Bible study, we're going through Daniel and I was just thinking back on Daniel. Remember in the very beginning where Daniel gets invited into Nebuchadnezzar's palace, if you will. And he's put on this regiment. He's got a spa director and they're kind of, you know, supposed to, you know, do all the things with Daniel, make him look beautiful. And Daniel says, hey, I'm not eating the king's stuff. And I put myself in the position of his handler, the spa director that was in charge of Daniel. And I imagined as he went home, told his family, hey, I'm over Daniel and Daniel won't eat Nebuchadnezzar's food. He says he'll do all the sit-ups and all the push-ups and all the calisthenics and he'll run, but he's not eating the guy's diet. And I can imagine somebody in the family said, hey, you got to get to Daniel. Because if Daniel doesn't eat the food and he gets rejected, you get killed. So you go back to Daniel and you tell him, and I can imagine the guy looking at his family going, you haven't looked into the eyes of Daniel. There's no debate. I wonder if that's what it was like when Jesus walked into that room. And they all looked at him and he had that whip in his hand. He starts flipping tables and there was no one who said, hey, let's rise up against him. Somebody said, look into his eyes. He is going to clean this house. Why? Because the worst thing that you can allow to happen in your life is idolatry. Jesus is going to walk into your home this afternoon. Uninvited. And he's going to walk into your heart and he's going to ask you the question, is there anything that you're allowing right now that is a barrier to the glory of God and the worship of God. And if there is, he's going to flip it. He's going to flip it not because he wants to destroy you. He's going to flip it because he understands the greatest threat to your heart and to mine and to our church is idolatry. The minimalization of the glory of God and the inflation of our value. And for that reason, God will come into our church And he will come into your life. He doesn't give you permission to put a whip in your hand. And God forbid that you go out to the foyer and there's a junior hire out there selling muffins to go to a, you know, a a retreat that you go, oh, you money changer. Sorry. I'm way more concerned about your heart than that little junior hire. And by the way, that junior hire is not getting in your way to Christ. Your body is the temple of the living God. Our problem is not the foyer. Our problem is me. Can I allow the glory of God to be minimalized and listen to the context of my life 
with a greater voice. And Jesus says, I will tear your house down because I love you.